Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. In a recent interview with Pentecostal theologian Dr. Christopher Thomas, he said that the Book of Mormon was quite Trinitarian in its theology. Paul Toscano disagrees. We're going to dig more into that in our next episode. Check it out. I think that the Book of Mormon contains expositions. Um, I'm going to narrow it down to two. Two expositions on the Godhead that I think are radical departures from Orthodox Christianity, and I think, uh, to me, are better than Orthodox. I think the or the Nicene Creed of 325 was really a compromise statement to get the bishops from all. There were a lot of different versions of Christianity, a lot of different interpretations of what Jesus said and meant. And they had to come up with something that they could all sign off on. <laughs> and that, that Constantine needed to use politically to one emperor, one religion, let's get this settled. So let me set that up a little bit, because I think that's kind of, that's, that's where we really wanted to go with this conversation anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, there's been a, I know with my Chris Thomas interview recently, um, one of the things that Chris said that I think you took issue with was the Book of Mormon was, and it's funny, I just had a, a talk with a Lutheran pastor, so I got to, I got to pick my words. Mormons would say Trinitarian, um, Pentecost or, uh, evangelicals, Pentecostals, um, Protestants would say more modal, modalism, which Mormons, I think, kind of lose the the difference between what's the difference between Trinity and modalism. Um, but but at any rate, um, I also know, uh, you know, Don Bradley and um, and Denver Snuffer have recently said uh, have taken issue with this idea that that the Book of Mormon is Trinitarian. Um, and that they they say that that if you look at the Book of Mormon, it, there's there's a lot of Godhead theology, and I believe that's your position as well. It is, and I had this position in the 1960s. Okay, I mean, I these guys are new. <laughs> I've been in trouble for this since the 60s. <laughs> on my mission, I got in trouble with it. Oh wow! I, on, after I got uh, off my mission, and I was teaching Italian at the a language tra they didn't have a language training mission for Italian when I left in 66. Oh. But in 69, when I got back, I needed a job. You served the three-year mission? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, it wasn't three years. It was two and, two and a half. half. Yeah, okay. I, I think it was short a month of two and a half because I got uh, released by Hartman Rector, who, who was a substitute mission president in 69, as I was being released in March of 69. Uh and I was released a little early so I could get on the block plan at BYU because oh. they, they had a way of matriculating back at, at BYU. If you just got off your mission, they had a way of doing that. They called it the block plan. Okay. Well, that's cool. It seems a odd name. <laughs> in, in any case, uh, um, I, I lost the thread of what we were talking about. So we were talking about the mission. You were talking, you said you yeah, had, I got in God trouble. had theology. Yeah, I got in trouble. And, 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 and when I, Got back from no, I hadn't gone on my mission yet, and I had I had I was a, a close uh, follower of Hiram Andrus at BYU in the in sixty four five and six. I was his research assistant. I had the 
onerous job of typing up his lectures that he gave in class that he recorded. With a typewriter. And I had to do it on a Remington typewriter <laughs> with onion skin copies. It was horrible. Yeah. And um, in the process, I, 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 became, I was very well aware of a lot of the uh, crisis-causing aspects of Mormon history and theology back in the 60s. I joined the church in 63. Okay. And by 66, I, I knew more about Mormonism because of Hiram Anders and Truman Madsen and others that I knew at BYU wow. than most people who have spent their lives in it. You know, I, anyway, uh, so I went back uh, for summer vacation, uh, the summer that I went to, um, on my mission and I was asked to, in the Covina stake in California, I was asked to talk to the monthly Emin and Gleaner M men and Gleaner. Those are the college kids, uh, meeting. There were about a hundred of them. And I talked about the atonement and I said, the book of Mormon teaches that Jesus is the supreme being and that he is both the father in heaven. And when he comes to earth, he's the son and he's the creator. And then he's the redeemer, which sounds very Trinitarian. It's not Trinitarian because Trinitarianism is that, uh, there's, there's one God, but he appears, it sounds Trinitarian, but it has to do with the, the way the Greek fathers, um, it, it, it sounds the way the Greek fathers formulated it in the, in the Nicene Creed. And uh, I can't remember all the Greek terms they use now because my memory isn't what it used to be. But um, it has to do with um, one in substance, but they had this word that they... Homoousius. Homoousius, that's it. That's it. <laughs> and that's not what we believe. Versus homoousius, right? Yeah. There's a little, little one I. Yeah, there's difference. D these differences people fought over. And it seems like it's Trinitarianism, but it is not. It is... a because of the emphasis on um, embodiment that Christ, uh, I think the Book of Mormon shows us that Christ was God before time, before the creation, before space and time was created, uh, when there was only God and there was no differentiation. It's very difficult for us to even conceive of this because we can't. Now, now before you get into there, can, can you tell us the difference between homoousius and homoousius? No, I'm not. A, I'm not. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to step into that. I'm, I'm, well, let me. I'll, I'll try my stab at it. Though. Oh, you go ahead because I suppose you know more. I about believe. It. I believe homoousius is of the same substance, and a homoousius is of like substance. I think that's the subtle difference. Yes, yeah. I'm saying that. What the Book of Mormon says is the same person. And this person is a personage who exists differently after the creation than God existed before the creation. Now, I, I know this sounds like Trinitarianism, but it, it is very different. Okay. Um, and, and what I want to do is I'm going to actually, in order to make this point clear, oh dear, my phone, I've got notes on my phone, but 
Um, I, I want to say this point, that I believe that the purpose of the Mormon Restoration was to reveal that Christ was the supreme being, not that he has a heavenly father that's superior to him. That's what the church teaches now. There's heavenly father and Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Right. That, that is clearly, that I believe that's completely wrong. That, that was formulated probably officially in the time of Joseph F. Smith. The, he came out with a statement on Christ, almost like a proclamation. You, you will probably recall that there was a, a, a kind of a settled view of Christ. But it, it establishes that there's God the Father as a body of flesh and bones, and his son also is in his express image. They're trying to derive it from the first vision, mm -hmm. and it's a misreading of the first vision. They, and the first article of faith. The first article of faith, which is wrong, <laughs> because it's viol it's, it goes contrary to what the Book of Mormon teaches. Okay. The Book of Mormon does not teach that Christ has a superior father. That, that, that I don't know where that comes from. You probably do. It's, I know it's there somewhere, <laughs> but I believe it's a misreading. Okay. And, uh, and so I think the purpose of the restora Mormon restoration was to establish that Christ was the supreme being. And here's the, um, and that the nature is to his divinity, which is uh, different from the fact that he is divine, he is God, but the nature, his nature as God is also obscured but it's in the Book of Mormon as well. And I, I, will, I will refer you to the two passages now. The first passage is Mosiah 15. Sure. In the first five verses, talks about the divinity of Christ. The nature of that divinity is stated by Lehi, the prophet Lehi, in 2 Nephi 2 and 11. There must needs be an opposition in all things, which is a reference really to the nature of, of God's divinity, the nature of his divinity, God's divinity. And I say his, but it's not, that's just the point. It's not his. It's a dual nature because there must needs be an opposition in all things, even in God. And it explains, Lehi goes on from verse 19 of verse 11 to verse 30, 19 verses of exposition. That's very hard to follow. But um, in it, what, what that exposition is, and I'll attribute it to Lehi. I don't know whether Lehi really existed, but it's attributed to the prophet Lehi, who lives at the time of Zoroaster. And Zoroastrianism has this idea that there's eternal good and eternal bad, and they're at war all the time, and there we are. But that's, that's an opposition to all things. Lehi subtly nuances that and says, no, the opposition is in all things. What does that mean? Well, in every male, there's female. In every female, there's male. In every creator, there's a creation. In every creation, there's a creator. It, it, it is this very, very difficult to... Uh, and so, if you take the name Jehovah, which is, applies to Christ, it's made up of two words, the Yah part, which is the male, and the Heve, the Hewe, which is Eve, which is female. So that the God, Jehovah, is really the nature of God's divinity is that it's a duality. Hmm. 
And we live in a time where polarity is being attacked all over because of transgender and uh, people and non-binary people. And that's fine. I'm not, I have no criticism of that, but I'm, I still believe that in the polarities because the polarities map out a spectrum. I mean, there's the North pole and there's the South pole, right? But that's, that's not, the earth is not just in Antarctica and in Antarctica. It's the whole globe exists between these poles and, and between there's energy that is created between the negative and the positive poles in physics. There's between the pole and the poles are pulling tend to pull apart and they oscillate and creation happens within pole, within the poles. And they're not just, it's not just repro reproducing identical poles. It's producing a whole spectrum, like a spectrum of light. There's all kinds of different light within the visible spectrum and beyond the visible spectrum, who knows what, what's there. So I believe that there is an opposition in all things. And when you take all things, you have, you say within the, within the totality, however you define it, you're going to find this polarity. And it's, and Lehi argues that it's the polarity that makes possible life and creation. He says that if it weren't for this opposition in all things, there would be, they would be dead as if having no life. Right. So he is proposing here a, an astonishing philosophical, metaphysical, radical departure because he is insisting, he's suggesting, he doesn't say it outright, but he's suggesting that it, even in God, there is this polarity of male and female. And that's why, and, and, and uh, that's why I think Jehovah really is a name that embodies this idea of the male and female divinities that are really one, but they have these different aspects, like two sides of a coin. Okay. Or actually, that's too flat for me. It's two, the point, the two ends of a spectrum. Okay. And so, Michael, which is the archangel, and possibly the one of the earliest creations of Jehovah, Michael means like unto God. Again, male and female. And Michael and Jehovah and Michael together in the four form the Elohim. Elohim is not a person. It's become that. It's become the name title we give to the Heavenly Father, which I think doesn't exist. Because Jesus is the Father. The mother of all living is the mother. Michael, who Joseph Smith said was Adam, Michael becomes Adam. So this sounds like we're getting into Adam God now. Adam God is was not what Brigham Young said it was. It, it doesn't mean that Adam is a God superior to Jesus. Adam is becomes a God in the way that we all will become gods, like Jesus says in the 10th chapter of John. It's Jesus who says this. And it's St. John, and or at least the letter, epistle of John, talks about how we don't know what he's like, but when he comes, we shall be like him. Christ, the whole point of Christianity is theosis. That is the justification and sanctification of human beings and the divination of human beings so they become part of the Godhead, joint heirs with Christ in the Godhead. 
So, yes, there are gods, but they're not gods before the self-existent being who was God, and that was it. And, and Joseph Smith says this in the King Followed Discourse. The King Followed Discourse is, is not read very well because it, it's, it's two things. It's a funeral sermon. It starts out as a funeral sermon, then it morphs slowly into a theological exposition. And you can tell where it, it becomes a theological exposition at the point about halfway through, as I recall, where Joseph Smith said, you, you say that God is a self-existent being, and in this you are correct. Now, there is a ladder of gods, but it's always, it's, it's our ladder. It's a ladder that that's, has to do with us. Or, and then he changes it to a circle. Uh, he says it's more like a ring than a ladder. He's going back mixing metaphors because it's very hard to capture in expositionary terms, in expository terms, a, a, a visionary text. And, and um, so the reason I bring this up is because, and I, I'm going to get to it right now. I, I mean, it's very hard for me to get to the point. I, I don't know why. It's because Abinadi. Abinadi lays out the truth. Now, Abinadi said unto them, and this is Mosiah 15, five verses, five. And now being that I said unto them, I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down and, and shall re, uh, among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he dwells in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. Well, that's easy to understand. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. See, this is where modalism comes yeah, in, right? Maybe. Well, most people would con- call this modalism. I, I don't know why. Okay. Uh, being the father and the son, the father, it says the father, because he was conceived by the power of God, that is not modalism. It is a totally unexpected statement. He's the father because he was conceived by the power of God. Now that sounds like something you'd say about the son. You say, well, he was the son because he was conceived by the power of God. But it doesn't say that. It, what it says about the son is next. He says, and he's the son because of the flesh, thus becoming the father and the son. Well, how is God the father conceived by the power of God if God the father is a self-existent being? And that troubled me for a long time. That's a great question. <laughs> and I have an answer. Okay. And the answer is this. Before God created the universe, the cosmos, space-time or whatever it is, before he created anything, God was not a father. But in the moment he conceived the creation, he becomes the father. Kind of like George Washington is the father of the country, that sort of a thing? Oh, I wouldn't use that example. Okay. You're talking about George Washington stole all the land from the Indians? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's that in the very act of, well, it's it's like, um, let's suppose... A man has sex with his wife, and they produce a zygote that becomes a baby. In that moment of conception, you know, he becomes the father of the zygote. Now, whether that's a human being or not is of something that the Supreme Court's trying to <laughs> decide and never will. <laughs> but uh, the question then is, you become, a person becomes a father at a certain point. And when it comes to human beings, fathers and mothers, we don't know that point because we don't know when that 
zygote becomes a human being. Brigham Young said, when it kicks. And until it kicks, it's not, the spirit hasn't entered the body, the fetus. I don't know. So I, my solution to that is leave it to the women since God made them in charge of babies. They get to decide, not the Congress, not the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's up to them. But, but when God became the father is in the moment that he conceived the universe. That's why it says he's the father because he was conceived by the power of God and the son because of the flesh. So maybe it is a little like modalism. But the, the, the point is that, that um, they're one God, yea, the very eternal father of heaven and of earth. And thus the flesh becoming subject to the spirit or the son to the father being one God suffered temptation, yielded not to the temptation, suffered himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. Now, I don't know whether that's modalism. I don't think it is. I don't know if it's Trinitarianism. I don't think it's the Trinitarianism that's propounded in the Nicene Creed or in Orthodox Christianity. It's close, but not it. And, 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 but it's definitely not what the church manuals teach now, which I think is a complete heresy. And the reason why I say that is because the reason, the reason why Abinadi gives this speech is because what he's saying is that God does not send his son to do the dirty work uh, in Gethsemane and on Calvary in order to save God's creation, in order to justify man to God, in order to appease God's sense of justice. Because if that were true, Jesus would be one more sacrifice in the multitudinous history of sacrifices that has existed where people are sacrificing something to appease God. Christ on the cross is the opposite. It's God sacrificing himself for us. It's not us sacrificing something to God to appease the gods. It's God sacrificing for us. And what is the nature of that sacrifice? Well, the nature of the sacrifice is that God sets aside his divinity, his invulnerability, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnibenevolence, well, maybe not the omnibenevolence, but his omnibenevolence. His, all the omnis are gone. He's incarnated as a human being, and he assumes the afflictions of, the, of his creation, their limitations to show us that he loves us more than he loves his invulnerability, more than he loves his divinity, more than he loves his, the omnis. And he makes himself like us. He makes himself equal to us so that we can come to him to be made equal to him in the resurrection. This is what Abinadi is trying to teach. This is the message that the Book of Mormon plasters on the title page of the Book of Mormon that to the convincing of Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. God does not send a lesser God to do the dirty work. God does it himself. Now, why does the church not like this teaching? Why does the Catholic church not like it? Why is it that the evangelicals don't teach it? Why is it hidden behind modalism or the 
homusia or the homusia or whatever, (laughs) veiled in that silliness. Why? Is because Christianity soon became, Mormonism soon became, Judaism soon became, Islam soon became, all of the Abrahamic religions gravitate toward authoritarianism. And God the Father sending his son to die is the model, the model of authoritarianism. It justifies the church lying to its people. It justifies Dallin Oak saying, we don't apologize. It justifies exploitation of owner, of workers. It justifies it. It is the model for the justification of exploitation the justification of using someone else to get gained. Hmm. It is the master mayhem principle to kill, to get gain. It is the root of war and it's the root of most conflicts. Who gets to be king of the hill? And that's why I, I think the church is very wrong to deviate in its manuals and its correlated teaching materials from what is set forth in the Book of Mormon, in both uh, so let me make sure. 15 and in Nephi 2 and 11. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Paul Toscano. In our next conversation, we'll talk about the God-Christ role reversal. Meanwhile, his female counterpart, who is the Holy Spirit, penetrates our hearts to illuminate us, which is a very male concept. So Jesus, who embraces and bleeds, and the Holy Spirit, who penetrates and illuminates and instructs, and sometimes reproves betimes with sharpness, takes on a male role. These are role reversals that are taking place. Thanks for listening to Gospel Tangents. If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, please subscribe at patreon.com slash gospeltangents. You can hear the entire interviews there. Also, check out our new, improved, uh, user-friendly website at gospeltangents.com. We've made it much more user-friendly, so check that out. Click here to subscribe, here for a transcript, and over here we've got more of our great videos. Thanks again.